Fact Chat. Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of math do not apply here. <laughs> One of my favourite brands of comedy aerial is brown people and black people making fun of white people. Senators have been dropping like flies recently. Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles Carter family, women just have one name. Back chat on FBI Radio. That's right, old school Backchat <laughs> intro. You are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, the freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. As always, we're going to give you the news you may not have heard on your airwaves this week. Yeah, that's right. Uh, first up, we're going to have Jess Hill, an investigative journalist and author of See What You Made Me Do, a confronting account of domestic violence in Australia. There's a content warning on this segment as she'll be talking to us about the impact of the coronavirus lockdown on survivors of domestic and family violence. After that, we have Osman Faruqi, former co-host of Backchat and the editor of the 7am podcast from the publishers of the Saturday paper. He's with us to discuss the over-policing of Sydney's western suburbs during the coronavirus crisis. That's right. And as always, we want to hear from you. What do you think of the ISO laws in place? Are they unnecessary? Are they strict? I um, I attended my first ever... Zoom birthday Ooh. party yesterday. Um, How was it? And it was awesome. Like everyone went on mute, and then one person sang karaoke. <laughs> it was really fun. Um, but yeah, I, I'm wondering if they are a bit too strict right now. A Zoom birthday party. I I don't know. Fair to my good Taurus friends. Yes, of course. I feel like I'm constantly breaking the law when I'm staying in my house and when I'm going out of my house. Like I feel I feel constantly conflicted. So I really don't know where I stand. I don't know. Well, let us know what you think. Text us in on oh four oh nine. 945945 or tweet us at FBI To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. We'd just like to start this segment out uh, with a content warning. We will be discussing domestic violence and abuse. So, as families are urged to self-isolate and lockdown restrictions grow tighter across the nation, survivors of family violence are being forced even closer to their abusers, causing an increase in cases of domestic and family abuse. We may be flattening the curve of corona cases, but this is one trajectory that shows no signs of easing off. We have Jess Hill, an investigative journalist and author of See What You Made Me Do on the line to talk to us about how survivors of family violence are being affected by the coronavirus lockdown orders. Hi there, Jess. Hey, guys. How are you going? I'm doing well. So we've seen reports that domestic violence is spiking during the coronavirus lockdown. What are some of the reasons behind this? Yeah, well, I mean, just to start with it, um, so what, what we've been seeing is actually conflicting reports. So from frontline services, um, especially Women's Safety New South Wales have been doing a lot of surveys of frontline services lately, and they're seeing that about 40% of their services are saying there's an increase. And then the Bureau of Crime Statistics came out and said, oh, actually, domestic violence has been stable um, and since the lockdown started in terms of statistical rises. But then behind those statistics, we see that there's, you know, there's about nine of the 14 areas that it looked at, it's increased, so 50% or so in Coffs Harbour, 30% around the capital area, Um, but then in other areas, it's gone down. So when they say it's stable, it's like overall. So we're seeing some areas sort of go down statistically, other areas go up. Um, But I think that what, I think sometimes when, and when I was writing the book on this, I really noticed that we really we try to put a lot of stock in statistics 
And we can lose sight of just what the experience is for people going through domestic abuse where maybe we're not measuring particular incidents but just the growing accumulation of fear and intimidation. And I think that it's, it's wouldn't take a lot of imagination to wonder what it would be like to be pretty much trapped most of the day inside the house with someone who is intent on degrading and humiliating and controlling you. Um, so I think, you know, in every, in every situation that we've seen in history, um, where, in, you know, in modern history where there's been like an a, um, economic depression or there's been a natural disaster, we always see domestic abuse go up. We always see domestic abuse go up over Christmas and, um, and summer holidays because families are spending much more time together mm. um, because there's not only is there closer family proximity, but it's like there are, there are fewer ways to get space from that. So when you're not actually going to work or when the children aren't at school and it's just that there's, there's ongoing stresses um, that don't get the same respite as they do when you're just going about your sort of everyday life. Um, and I think just the last thing to say to that is just that what I think we'll find out is that after this is all sort of said and done and we, we return to some maybe state of normality, um, is that we're going to find out a lot more through research of what it was actually like to be living inside houses um, because we, we see in all sorts of areas, like in Northern Territory, trauma surgeries due to family violence up 15%. I mean, there are, there's all sorts of conflicting information, but the experience inside the house is what I'm more interested in. So how do you think the pandemic has affected the number of people reaching out for help? So in Australia, the, there's been a noticeable drop to helplines. And by helplines, I mean like 1-800-RESPECT, the, the statewide helplines that people call both for counselling but also for access to crisis accommodation. So Safe Steps in Victoria, which was getting just an outrageous number of calls, like I think a call every two minutes, they saw a 30% drop in calls, like, basically immediately after the lockdown started. Mm. Um, and that's really, really unusual. Like, yeah. that's, that's not because suddenly domestic violence has stopped. You know, like, that's a direct correlation with, well, there are people being stuck inside their homes and they're not actually getting the space that they need to call and they're being told to stay home. So what, you know, who would be thinking of upending their life at this moment by, you know, leaving their relationship or looking to go into refuge accommodation unless it was absolutely extreme? Um, so I think that, you know, the access to support services, as I said, there's been an increase in access to frontline services, um, and but in terms of actually helplines, that's gone down. So the helplines uh, aren't being accessed as much as they should, but is there anything else the government... Um, has implemented to help survivors during this demanding time? Yeah. So, like, early on, the federal government gave a boost to helplines, assuming that that, um, that it was going to increase, and it may still increase. Well, I think that we've seen a number of measures and a much better response, I think, than other countries in Europe that really sort of waited for the domestic abuse incidents to rise before they responded. Here we have, I think even though it's not a perfect system by any means, we've got a lot better awareness and there's a lot more pressure on governments to respond to this quickly. So, they, you know, we saw fairly early states like Victoria. I know people who were working um, in policy in Victoria who were just going day and night 
trying to figure out how to best respond to this. And they came up with a $40 million funding package for temporary accommodation, for a whole bunch of other measures. The police in Victoria are now making, you know, um, are keeping in contact with high-risk perpetrators, just basically making sure that anyone they think is at, high, at, is at risk of committing family violence is getting a, a knock on the door, you know. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things going on there. But I just would point to one particular hole, and that is that there is a real funding gap for people on temporary visas. And so, you know, I'm actually, I've actually had two people get in touch with me recently in the last few days. So there, um, there are two women that they are in contact with who are on temporary visas who are, like, suffering the most incredible abuse that's only ramped up, especially now they can't even go home on a plane. You know, they're literally stuck here. Um, and they don't have any access to money. They have no access to any Centrelink benefits. Um, so those people are kind of totally stuck in the middle. Now, the Tasmanian government's just unveiled a $3 million package to support, I think they've got around 26,000 temporary visa holders stuck in Tasmania. Um, and what Women's Safety in New South Wales is calling on the government to extend that to temporary visa holders in New South Wales. So just to make sure that, like, if they need to escape, that they're going to have access to some money, just some funds, to get away from what might be an incredibly dangerous and escalating situation. You're listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We've got Jess Hill, investigative journalist and author of Domestic Violence Exposé, See What You Made Me Do, talking to us about family violence during the corona lockdowns. So, Jess, your book, See What You Made Me Do, is the product of a four-year-long investigation into domestic violence and family violence. What was that process like? Uh, long and um, <laughs> it was um, extremely, extremely difficult, um, but it was also profound and devastating and gripping and fascinating and terrifying and <laughs> everything that you can possibly imagine. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was stunning to, I guess, get so deep into a phenomenon that whether we know it or not, affects each and every one of us um, in in very different ways. And just to really, I guess, what I've really been thinking about a lot lately is just how much it challenged all my own preconceptions and stereotypes and biases. Um, and I think that's why, not that's not the only reason why, it's one reason why I kept going even when, you know, the bank account was looking extremely sad. Um, <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> And I was doing no other work and I was having a kid and it was like even getting half an hour to write was like hard. Um, so I, but I kept going because I kept thinking to myself, all these things that I have assumed that I know um, and all these assumptions I've made about victims and perpetrators and child abuse and all the rest of it, so much of it is being turned upside down by every day as I'm doing this research. And I just couldn't, I was not, satisfied with me being wrong about so many things and I thought if I'm wrong about these many things and I, I feel like I'm reasonably intelligent well then probably a lot of us are wrong about this and so I just really wanted to create a book that anyone could pick up and they would be able to come to the end of it and have a really good understanding of what domestic abuse looks and feels like and how the justice system responds to it and how we can solve it. So you recently posted on Twitter one story that really surprised you while you were doing your research. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so that's the um, the origin of Stockholm Syndrome, 
And uh, it's something that we we throw around really casually. Oh, she's got Stockholm Syndrome. People are talking about it, even in relation to the doctors who are working with the Trump administration. Like, oh, they must have Stockholm Syndrome, you know. <laughs> and, and a lot of people use it without really thinking about what that means. It's like, oh, because they love or they're affectionate towards their captor. Or, you know, a lot of people would probably be able to explain it. But where Stockholm Syndrome actually comes from is it, there was a bank heist in Sweden, um, in, in Stockholm, in the 1970s. And essentially there were these six, six bank tellers that were taken hostage. And Swedish police had never dealt with a, with a bank heist or a hostage situation before, and they had no idea what they were doing. And their response was so ham-fisted. Like at one stage, the psychiatrist who was leading the response, um, this guy Niels Beirut, he advised that they find the brother of the hostage taker but they identified the wrong hostage taker and they got the wrong brother. So they sent this like 16-year-old boy into this hostage situation. The hostage taker starts shooting at him and then they're like, oh, it's just, they just don't understand. So let's send him back in again. You know I mean? Like we're talking about a mental situation with hostages. I'm just like, oh my God, this is, we're going to die, you know? And so this one hostage, Kristen and Mark, got on the phone um, to a, a radio station and was basically just writing off the police writing off the psychiatrist who was leading the response because they wouldn't talk to her, they wouldn't hear her concerns. And then she gets on the phone to the Swedish Prime Minister and she's like, Olaf Palmer, we are going to die in here. Here's a plan. Why don't you let us leave with the hostage takers? We think they'll let us leave if you if you let us all leave together. And Olaf Palmer's like, no, we can't negotiate with the hostage takers. And Kristen Enmark says at the end of the phone call, he said, look, you know, maybe you'll just have to be contented to have died at your post. Wow. Like she's some soldier, like not a bank teller, but anyway. Um, and, uh, and so she's just like, um, I don't want to be a dead hero, right? I have no interest in that. So then finally, the Swedish police, after about six days, they march in, they blow the, you know, the vaults open with tear gas and in the full thing, literally there are Swedish policemen with their shirts ripped off like marching into the bank and and then marching these hostage takers up and down the street like they are just Rambos. And Kristen and Mark is looking at this just like, oh my god, this is so pathetic. And um and she's and she said, you know, they they came to her and they said, let's put you on a stretcher. You know, you've been through so much. And she's like, I walked in here six days ago and I'm walking out. And after that, she got on the radio again and just blasted the police and blasted the psychiatrist again, just, you know, saying what they had done was put their lives in danger. Um, and then the psychiatrist who'd led the police response gets on the radio, and his reply to her, without having talked to her once, without having heard anything about her story from her, he, he diagnosed her with a new syndrome that he had just coined called Norman Stork Syndrome, which later became Stockholm Syndrome. And he said that the reason why she distrusted police is because she had an emotional and sexual um, relationship with her captors, and and that was why she had those bad feelings towards the police and towards him. And then that, that, um, that whole syndrome, it was picked up by other trauma psychologists and it's been redefined over time. But essentially what a, a recent study found is that there was actually no diagnostic criteria for it no one can even really agree on what it is. And actually, the, where it is most diagnosed is in the media and by journalists. <laughs> what a story. Wow. Thank you for clarifying that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at Beauty and the Beast in a whole different light now. Thank you. 
Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, before we let you go, a quick question about the coronavirus tracing app. Um, obviously, a lot of privacy concerns around it. Do you think survivors of domestic violence might be more vulnerable to breaches if they use that app? Look, I can't say for sure because I'm not I'm not in, across in as much detail um, as I'd need to be across that particular app. What I would say is that like perpetrators are having no problem getting into their partner's phones as it is um, and that the access to tracing apps is so incredibly simple and easy, especially the tracing apps that, that mask themselves as like, oh, parents, are you worried about your children? Yeah, here's a way to have access to their, everything in their phone and to use their phone like a GPS tracking device. Yeah. And it's like, good one, guys. As if it's only parents picking up this app, and I'm sure those companies know that. So whether or not the government tracing app would actually make things more difficult for survivors, I don't know. I think basically, generally, we're pretty right to be sceptical of anything that traces our movements, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know enough about it. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely a use case that needs to be put into consideration And when developing the app. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time um, and speaking with us this morning, Jess. No problem. Thanks for having me. That was investigative journalist and author of See What You Made Me Do, Jess Hill, speaking to us about family and domestic abuse in the time of the coronavirus lockdown. And if you or someone you know is impacted by domestic or family violence, call 1-800-RESPECT or visit respect.org.au. Don't go anywhere because we're going to be chatting to Osman Faruqi, the editor of the 7am podcast and former Backchat host, about the over-policing issues in Western Sydney. Yep, we've got that coming right up next. But first, we're going to play a song. This is my fave track by Danger Incorporated. This is World Wide Web. Stay tuned. The the Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Fact chat, your alternative to talk back. So we've all been dealing with the sheer boredom that the coronavirus lockdown orders have presented us with. And while a few of us see no harm in quickly socially distanced jogging or a walk around the park, over-policing in some areas of Sydney appear to be targeting certain demographics more than others. That's right, which is interesting because mm-hmm. you, me, my friend, yes. live in Bondi. I which do. Which is the, the New York of Australia. It's, it is, it's the Wuhan of Australia. <laughs> it's the Wuhan. It is, Let's it's not the, lie. It's the epicenter it of the correct. coronavirus um, outbreak. But it appears that the police are finding areas of Western Sydney. Correct. In fact, I have a stat here where um, Western Sydney suburbs account for 5% of corona cases, yet they make up 15% of New South Wales public health order fines, mm. which is quite interesting. Um, in fact, I've had other friends who are also people of colour say they're a bit afraid to go out for a walk yeah. um, in a very respectable social distancing kind yeah. of a scenario, uh, given these measures, just because... Yeah. They're the minority, and we've heard things. We all have heard things, especially overseas. Like it's a scary time. I think that I've always maybe, maybe it's a bit. Uh, uh, maybe I'm overthinking, but I think when you give extra powers to the police, when you're a person of color and you're from Western Sydney, you tend to be a bit more cautious. My parents uh, are in Western Sydney, and they're Indian migrants. Mm. And um, every time I go and visit them, they get really terrified that I'm driving and visiting them. Like, have the cops pulled you over? I'm like, I don't think cops are patrolling the Pacific Highway, pulling over <laughs> pea platers. But they have that fear. And I'm curious if our listeners have the same fear as well. So um, on today's show, we've actually 
asked uh, uh, whether these restrictions to keep us indoor um, are too strict. And most of people, most of our um, listeners say that, no, they are needed. 62% of our listeners say that they're needed. Uh, so we all respect the rules in place, but uh, how we still find a way to be functioning around that is quite testing. In fact, all of my personal encounters with uh with offices have been only pleasant. Okay. Right? That's another Personally? Okay. (laughs) But I understand, I understand this, this group sentiment that we have. So I can have both of those sentiments at the same time and I find that quite interesting. Well, I think the data doesn't lie, right? True. uh, New South Wales is the only state that has released the data um, where the public health order infringements are being handed out. So we actually don't know the statistics in other states, but um, obviously New South Wales has the most cases of coronavirus, so there's going to be, they're going to be stricter enforcements in place. Uh, But the the data shows, right, they are targeting areas with, you know, low socioeconomic people of colour in Western Sydney. So I wonder... I mean, I'm curious to know whether it's going to get stricter and whether it's going to, um, you know, get worse and worse. I wonder, just because where I live right now in Bondi, uh, if I go for a walk, I see everyone out anyway. Mm. Um, For the most part, people do try and keep their distance, but a quiet day on Campbell Parade is like a busy day on a residential street. (laughs) (laughs) So I I actually am terrified to go for a walk. So it is interesting to see whether these measures will get stricter, but if they were going to get stricter, they would have gotten stricter by now. Yeah. Grammar is great, but... (laughs) Uh, You guys are listening to Backchat with Svetha and Shama. You are talking about the increase in... um, public health order infringements being handed out in Western Sydney in particular. We were going to speak to Osman Faruqi, who's the, um, who, you know, who runs 7am podcast yes. by the Saturday paper, but we've had some technical difficulties. We can't reach out to him. Uh, but we still want to hear from you. You know, what do you think about the isolation laws? Do you think they're too strict? You know, one of the thoughts I've been having is, you know, the infringement orders are definitely um, happening a lot more in Western Sydney, but are we certain that information about the pandemic is linguistically and culturally diverse? Are we actually, mm. you know, translating the information out to those areas? Because I think once there's that information barrier, that's where you get hoarders and that's when you get people actually breaking the law or, or doing things that are harming the community. I agree. I agree. Also, Ramadan's just started. So Ramadan Mubarak to everyone out there who's listening. Uh and obviously, that's a big time for families to get together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big time for communities to get together. Obviously, the Lakemba night markets is, is such a mm. big part of Sydney culture. So uh, having that information that's accessible to them at this time is very important, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Look, just to wrap up the show, mm. um, let's. I want to place a bet on when you think isolation is going to end. Because Ooh. Charmy, before the show, came up to me and said, yeah, this is all over in June, right? <laughs> Like I don't know who you're speaking to. I don't to. know. I saw it on like some <laughs> random article by I don't I don't know. I think it was like a dot net. It wasn't even a dot com okay. site. I don't know. June, dude. Babe, that's, <laughs> I, we got a text in. Oh, Tiff, Tiff from Carlingford has said that Brilliant. she um, uh, was not able to go to Hong Kong. She was desperate to go visit her family in Hong Kong this year, and she actually um, pushed out her plane tickets to the end of 2021. So oh wow! I don't think she's very optimistic. I think isolation is going to end. Christmas. Okay, wow. So there is an interview uh, um, with Bill Gates, uh, and he suggests, because he knows everything, right? He suggests that uh, even if isolation does lift, international travel won't be really a thing for a good three years. So have fun with that stat. 
Yikes. That is so <laughs> sad. Hey, look, uh, that's all we've got for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Pip Leeson, Millie Roberts, and Vanessa Lem. <sighs> and thanks again to our guests, <laughs> Jess Hill and... Um, would have been freaky, <laughs> but it <laughs> Anyway, we'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play my favorite song this week. All right. For a change. Yes. <laughs> I'm okay. still the DJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. The small wins, baby steps. Um, it's by Ariella Jacobs. She's a Melbourne artist and she's a friend of FBI Radio. We love her here. Uh, this song is a great one to unwind to. It's what I've been doing my yoga to in the morning. I know, very Bondi. <laughs> um, this is called Morning by Ariella Jacobs. See you all next week. Thanks, guys.